They don't get the memo. You don't get the memo because until you have maybe a moment where you're like, wait a second. So you weren't given Miller Lite at 10? Like that didn't mm -hmm. happen at your household? Or I can drink everyone under the table. I just thought everyone could do that. Mm -hmm. So when you grow up in a system where it's just part of it, just like any other environment where you're like, you know, that light bulb is kind of too late in the sense of how impactful it is from zero to five, five to 15. And if around 17, you start to 18, 19, start to think, oh, okay, wow. <laughs> Not everyone like hung out and drunk with their relatives at like eight, nine, 10, or, you know, maybe I do have a high tolerance and that doesn't mean that it's awesome. Come drink with me. That means that that high tolerance is really a dependence cycle. Yes. So that the, the history, the zero to like, whenever the memo does start to show up, it, I don't, it's not too late, but you better start paying attention to it because you've got grooved and patterns and conditioned responses set in there. And that just doesn't happen like a light switch. Blend delivers accessible, personalized mental health experiences through innovative therapy and professional coaching to improve quality of life. Blend approaches mental health as a collaborative process to navigating life more intentionally. Blend's mission is to provide a blend of accessible, personalized therapeutic experiences, creative approaches, and effective skills-based interventions to overcome obstacles to live well. Blend's team delivers a blend of professional expertise in the fields of social work, psychology, mental performance, holistic health, as well as highly qualified instructors in yoga, creative arts, and meditation. Blend meets their clients where they are, literally and figuratively. Blend's mission. Blend delivers accessible, personalized mental health experiences through innovative therapy and professional coaching to improve quality of life. Blend approaches mental health as a collaborative process, navigating life more intentionally. Blend's mission is to provide a blend of accessible, personalized therapeutic experiences, creative approaches, and effective skills based interventions to overcome obstacles to live well. Blend's team delivers a blend of professional expertise in the fields of social work, psychology, mental performance, holistic health, as well as high quality instructors in yoga, creative arts, and meditation. Blend meets their clients where they are literally and figuratively. They connect with clients in the comfort of their home, over coffee, at a yoga studio, in a conference room, on the sports field, as well as with text and virtual sessions. Blend delivers their integrative style through one-on-one -on -one sessions, customized workshops, and group events. Blend offerings include addiction and recovery, performance psychology, identity development and enhancement, lifespan navigation, value-based living, couples and family therapy, healthy lifestyle management, interpersonal skills development, conflict resolution and negotiation. Blend Studios provide coaching and therapy in Ann Arbor, Royal Oak, and Kalamazoo, Michigan, as well as coast-to-coast -coast through virtual communication and off-site workshops, events, and pop-up experiences. You can find more information at blendhealth.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for being here on the Sober is Dope podcast. I am extremely excited today for you guys to hear my talk with Brooke Byes, who's the founder of an amazing integrative mental health and wellness therapy company, Blend. And Brooke is a real trailblazer in the therapy field. She takes an integrative approach to therapy which consists of a holistic spin and really meeting the client where they are. And someone like me who had to go through the whole process of recovery, I could truly appreciate Brooke's therapy approach, and I truly understand it. And I think this type of approach can really create change in people's lives. Sometimes the underlining factor in our recovery is the type of treatment we receive, the type of attention we receive, and the type of tools that we are provided. And Brooke and her amazing team does a great job at bringing value and real attention to detail to their clients. So I'm so excited for you guys to hear my talk with Brooke. And Brooke and I both really connected on so many levels. So please enjoy. And with no further ado, here's my talk with Brooke Byes, the founder of Blend. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Sober is Dope podcast. I'm your host, Pop Buchanan, and I am very, very excited to have a special guest on the podcast today. Today, we're talking to the founder of Blend, which is an integrative mental health and wellness company. Brooke Byes is our guest today, and she is doing so much in the mental health space, and we're very excited to have her on. Brooke, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to, to connect with you. And like I said, social media, it connects people. I'm not always on there, so I'm really happy to, to be here with you this morning. So. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I, I, I'm very grateful for social media, making the connections. Just to give the audience some context, Brooke and I are both speaking at National Sober Day. Um, and uh, we have a mutual friend, Courtney Anderson, um, from Sober Vibes. And we're, that's how we met. And that's in September. And we're very excited to bring value to the recovery community. So, Brooke, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, your company is outstanding. Um, and you have an extensive background in the clinical and mental health area. So just let us know a little bit about your personal origin story. Yeah, sure. So I am um, from Michigan, born and raised in the west side of Michigan, close to Lake Michigan, um, to give folks context. Uh, I grew up in a really small town and uh, played uh, soccer at my undergrad at Kalamazoo College, a small liberal arts college. Had a great time there. It was a really critical point in my young adulthood in terms of just how it's shaped me and what it exposed me to. I spent some time in Guatemala while I was in college and that really um, impacted me. After college, I went on to teach for about a year and realized um, <laughs> with all due respect to the public school classroom, I just uh, really wanted to color outside the lines uh, and felt really compelled to work within the social sector and didn't really know what that looked like. Uh, so I kept um, working for nonprofits in the Kalamazoo area, which is on the west side of Michigan, and uh, really found myself connected to people, to communities, to organizations, and again, didn't know what that would look like. So I um, found myself back at school again at the University of Michigan for my master's in social work and started my journey in social work at U of M and really felt from day one when I was sitting in the classroom that I definitely was on my path. However, there were lots of things that I started to scratch at and question and a lot of curiosities about our mental health system. And I just, I kept a log, I kept a journal. I thought to myself, this is important. This is valuable. This foundation of education is uh, going to be critical for me, not only to do the work that I wanted to be able to go do, but also for me to know that someday I wanted to keep coloring outside the lines. So um, I worked for a handful of years in a lot of different social work positions, um, school social work, um, 
outpatient, inpatient, um, home-based interventions. I, that's a huge part of my jam is going into neighborhoods and into homes to do uh, mental health care. So that's a big influence on me. And then um, I, my last real job, because now I don't really feel like I work. This is just such a gift to be able yes. to be doing the work that I'm doing. My last real clinical job was about four years ago. I worked at a dual diagnosis residential facility. And um, that was a space that I thought I would be at for a while because um, I was very passionate about the population, but most of all, I felt like I finally may have found a space where I could um, really deliver the care that I thought was important, which was integrative. So I could go in the woods with folks, I could hike, I could really kind of integrate it all. Um, and I was able to do that, but it was also still a system I was in that I was feeling really uh, a lot of constraints, a lot of, uh, I felt unsupported by um, superiors, you know, um, that showed up a lot. And the system made it very difficult for us to really deliver client-centered care. I think that those um, treatment centers provide a lot for folks. So I want to just make that statement. But for me, I got very burnt out of uh, the folks that were around me. And I got burnt out of not being able to really provide what I thought was um, person-centered care. So I'd never really quit a job like that. I just straight up was like, no, I am not well. I'm getting sick. Like I vomited in my car one week on the way home from work. And I'm like, this is not the flu. This is me super sick, stressed out, not well. And I thought, if I'm going to do this work for the rest of my life, which I set out to do, I got, I got to do it on my own. I'm going to like jump and take the leap. And the next day I started a mobile IOP mm. um, for folks who, you know, aren't familiar. That's uh, intensive outpatient programming um, shows up a lot with substance use and recovery. And I really went to folks homes that um, I kind of got connected with in the community and started my business out of people's houses, really providing them with wraparound care. And my business has grown over the past four years since then. And we do a lot more than just substance use and recovery now, but that was really the core of, it was the catalyst. I, I really struggled discharging the women that I was seeing and the men that I was seeing, knowing that I would see them again soon. And I know that that's part, I know it's complicated and complex and that's part of the cycle, but um, I had a lot of trouble with that. And so um, I've been really fortunate to be able to grow the business and have a team. So that's my not so brief elevator speech. Oh man, but that's, <laughs> that's pick, so. Pick apart at it and I'm here yeah, questions. And... I love it. I love it because a couple of things. One, when you go against your heart and you don't follow that inner calling, it tends to like, it tends to pull at you and just that experience in your car and you knowing that it was a greater calling of yourself and you seeing these blind spots in, in, in your field of work and knowing that you could bring so much more value to people, you know, that love and just taking that steps took a lot of courage. So congratulations. I think we're all fighting with that. I'm still dealing with that on the front line. My passion is in helping people in the recovery space. My passion is in speaking. My passion is into giving back. But then, you know, you still have to put money on the table and you still have to fight that kind of that balance. So thank you. And the one thing I want to say is in my case, I'm particular. So I would traditionally be the patient right in this scenario, in this exchange, because I could go back eight years ago when I was struggling in my addiction. And if I didn't take an integrative approach, I wouldn't find I wouldn't have such a high success rate in my recovery. And the Sober's Dope podcast is all about the, you know, combined, we call it the all-in approach, doing as much as we can to help heal the pain of the addiction and the mental health. So you're the perfect person to speak to. And I love your company name, Blanda, um, and it's spelled B-L-N-D. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. You know, we've had a lot of uh, interpretations of that, um, believe it or not. Blind, blonde. <laughs> Uh, so, um, and it really is actually, it's a, based on a, a client story, actually. Uh, we, uh, in 
I think year one of our business, part of our model and part of really what we were piloting, we were really doing patient, client-centered sort of, we're going to follow your lead today. Um, and some of that was if folks, we were serving them in their homes and the goal is to like, let's get you connected, obviously to yourself, but to community. And we will be there with you to connect with the community, but we're going to kind of start pushing a little bit because we do believe in that community and that connection is really vital. So we took one of our clients to um, Kalamazoo Candle Company, which is downtown Kalamazoo. They distribute candles all over the world now. Pretty amazing sense, but they do candle making workshops. And another core belief of ours is like utilizing your hands and like creating. And so we were there with her um, and I was there for a bit and then I had to take off. So another colleague of mine was uh, completed the whole candle making process. And a couple of weeks later, our client brought it to me and it said Brooks Blend. And it sat in my dining room for a while, like we would light it and, you know, I was kind of struggling with the whole like branding and do we really need to brand and what's a name and I just want to do this work. Why do I have to think about all this other stuff? And uh, my husband said, what about blend? Like remove the E, like that's what we're doing. We're trying to blend all this stuff together and your blend might be different than mine. And, uh, and it just stuck. And uh, it's special that it's connected to a client, but it's spot on with how we engage with our clients, how we engage as a team, how we engage with um, community practitioners and um, folks out in the larger community. So appreciate you seeing like the blend piece. Yes, I, I totally love it. So when we, go, so feeding off a of blend, um, you have a holistic approach and also unconventional approach to therapy and meeting people where they are, right? And that's important for you, being able to go out to maybe meet people in their own respective environment, taking people outside of their comfort zones, um, really connecting. So for me, I I could appreciate that. I took an outpatient approach to my recovery. So that was cool because I would have my day, my day was segmented. So I would have, I would have this environment at the the shelter, the three quarter house with the guys, right? Mm -hmm. These guys was coming in from um, drug programs from jail. I was the only kid there who had like a regular normal background, college graduate and all of this stuff, just had an addiction issue. And, but I had to sit there with all of these guys, but then I would go to my outpatient program and then I would be able to do other stuff like go to meditation, do yoga on my own. Cause I, I had freedom throughout the day and that's what really helped me I guess I, I was able to go into different environments and start to become part of society again I spent so many years stuck in my darkness in that room with that bottle festering with my depression so that brings me to my uh, I want to talk to you briefly about comorbidity and um, addiction that dual diagnosis that usually comes along with the uh, with with your with the mental health addiction and uh, with mental health and addiction, and I feel like there's a lot of I'm in New York. There's a lot of programs that sometimes don't cover the mental health aspect for the person that's struggling in recovery. Right? They just treat the addiction. They'll detox the person, probably put them in some short rehab and let them leave. And I was lucky. I was into a place like you were into, like yours, where it was a um, it was a dual diagnosis facility. So they did a psych social, and yeah. they sent me to a mental health um, a psychiatrist, a therapist. Uh, figured out if I needed medication, and also had me into the addiction programs. So can you talk about comorbidity and mental health, and how it relates to addiction, or how addiction can fuel mental health issues? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think our culture and our systems have done an excellent job of like this binary. We do that naturally anyway, but like separating, we separate the mind from the body. We uh, separate, you know, addiction from mental health, or I think not always overtly, but it it has occurred kind of within the system. Um, And we've had a lot of, you know, fairy tales, marketing, uh, and other kind of <laughs> hocus pocus in the larger macro sense that has kind of continued to sort of fuel these like perceptions and conceptions of addiction and what that looks like and what that might be separate from mental health. I think we're 
in a such better place with how public we're becoming with addiction and recovery. So that's really awesome that hopefully there's many, many people that are looking to, to integrate. Um, and we, we want that. I think the biggest objective with the work that we do with folks is how do we integrate yourself, you, all of your parts, um, and provide you like you experience with the autonomy to be able to have choice in your day. And that today I feel this, so I'm going to go to yoga and I'm going to get some meditation and then I'm going to go to work tomorrow. I might feel like shit. So I, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. So some of that autonomy and sometimes it's not so comfortable, but the autonomy and the integration, I believe is what brings you closer to a whole person. So all that being said with comorbidity, you know, our much like you experienced, a lot of systems are set up where it's just detox. You know, I had a young woman that just admitted a couple days ago into an acute ER detox setting. It is what it is. It's going to safely detox this individual. Um, she's at risk for self-harm and risk to um, suicide. So that particular system and that setup to be able to properly detox and keep that individual monitored is what we have right now. I wish we had more gentle ways to detox folks. I hope that that's happening. Uh, we're dabbling a little bit with that in terms of home-based detox and how, how we can help folks because there's a huge aversion to going to ER and to go to acute care or calling the ambulance. So um, that separation um, exists and the piece around mental health and addiction, the lens that we always look through is environment, trauma your world what is going on with you this just didn't pop up there there are stories there are narratives how do we get to know you yes there is a debilitating um, condition that's occurring but they are linked hand in hand and unfortunately again because of some of our systems we have to admit folks into treatment facilities based on the severity of your addiction and then once you're in, then we clinicians have to make a mental health diagnosis in order to then provide you with treatment. Okay. And often, and that happens really quick. So, and I'm speaking mostly to residential facilities and that's, it's, it's important, right? But the diagnostic criteria is set up in a way where let's take borderline personality disorder and look at a young woman who's in detox for heroin and her active use of heroin and addiction, they're gonna look the same. So then we plop a borderline diagnosis on this young woman who of course she's taking risks. Of course she can assess consequences. Of course, you know, these, there's all these other criteria. So now we've just slapped a whole new label on this person. Um, there's value in our mental health diagnostic system. Uh, I think it, it really, the labels and the criteria start getting in the way of, of the person. And so we love spending an extra amount of time that biopsychosocial, digging into like the trauma history, digging into environmental, get, digging into your birth story, what else is going on, um, and really kind of connecting that this is not... Um, you know, a, a deficit, that this is happens to be a path that sometimes is just quite progressive for a lot of folks. They don't realize that they're now, oh, okay, now I'm using much more frequently. Obviously, some substances take on a, a it's not as progressive, for instance, as alcohol, but that's our lens. I, it, they do go hand in hand. I believe that. Uh, the whole person should be treated. Um, I also believe that until someone is sort of detoxed and you give them some time, like just give some folks some time before we start treating a severe mental health diagnosis, you know, because then it gets all mixed up and then there's a whole medication regimen that's plopped into them and now they're taking PRNs and all these other pharmaceuticals. They have value again, but it starts to become um, not person-centered. So I can't say that enough. And with trauma, we want to take time to explore what trauma is with folks. And trauma can be uh, 
a divorce, it can be a separation, it can be incarceration. Um, PTSD exists and those are significant criteria for folks to meet in terms of trauma. But in the field, often you might hear like big T versus little T trauma. It's just your story. What's been happening? How do you see yourself in the world? What has happened to you? What has happened around you? It is, it is not you. What, just what is your story and how can we start to untangle it in a way that um, helps you feel like you have a, a voice and somewhere in there and it takes time. I mean, we, we do not sugarcoat that at all. I mean, I, I got comfortable with that very early on in the business where like, listen, if you want this overnight, you, you go somewhere else. Yes. This is going to be really slow. It's going to be like moving through honey and it's not going to be sweet at all. It is. You're going to relapse. We're going to run into walls over and over. Your family's not going to understand. Um, it's clunky. But the clunkiness is where all the jam is. Where's all the jam? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I hope that addressed, you know, I'm pretty um, passionate about like the environmental pieces and and trauma and just people's histories and stories and um, the addiction is a is, is a part and there's lots of parts of people. I love it. You said a lot of pivotal things. One, trauma. We know trauma, right? I love that. Big T, little T. Um, without trauma, is the foundation to usually something of most addiction, pain, right? Doctor Gabor Mate. I don't, I'm sure you heard of this guy. He's trailblazing. He talks about that. All addiction stems from a form of pain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that and trauma. I always tell people that trauma tends to lead to neuroplasticity issues it changes the brain right it could be anything in my case when I was younger it was the loss of my father right Mm -hmm. and I talk about the importance of bereavement counseling when you're in recovery dealing with those underlining foundational pain points then as I got older a bad you know a breakup a devastating breakup led further to more trauma and then I was drinking on top of that using that to cope the problem was I was allergic to alcohol, right? Alcohol, naturally, I'm an addict because I'm allergic to it clinically or the way they, you know, based on the term of alcoholic. And when you mix the two together, some people may, you know, society tells us through television, oh, I have a bad breakup. Let's go out for drinks. Let's go out to party. The problem is if you're an addict, and you don't know it. Most addicts don't get the memo. I always talk about that. That's my little thing. We didn't get the memo when we were born. We didn't get that memo saying, hey, Joseph, you, the way your body is set up in brain, you have imbalance in your serotonin and dopamine levels, and you should never drink alcohol, right? I'm sure if most people get that memo, they'll go, oh, I'm allergic to it, just like someone may be allergic to peanuts or strawberries, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm very passionate, and part of the podcast, the goal of the podcast is to get to the future potential addict before they even get there. What's the warning signs, right? Mm -hmm. What to watch out for, how to deal with trauma, how to deal with loss, how to deal with pain. So that's how I got so fascinated in the mental health space, trying to identify, letting people know, you know, you're dealing with depression. If it's high function and dysthymia, low function, depression, bipolar mania, what did it, what does it all look like and Mm -hmm. how it relates to your recovery? So, you know, what you're talking about is right on. And I think that's the subject now, especially dealing with adult children of alcoholics growing up in this environment, right? This may be a- For sure. And they don't get the memo. You don't get the memo because until you have maybe a moment where you're like, wait a second. So you weren't given Miller Lite at 10? Like that didn't Mm -hmm. happen at your household? Or I can drink everyone under the table. I just thought everyone could do that. So when you grow up in a system where it's just part of it, just like any other environment where you're like, you know, that light bulb is kind of too late in the sense of how impactful it is from zero to five, five to 15. And if around 17, you start to 18, 19, start to think, oh, okay, wow, (laughs) not everyone like hung out and drunk with their relatives at like eight, nine, 10, or, you know, maybe I do have a high tolerance and that doesn't mean that it's awesome. Come drink with me. That means that that high tolerance is really a dependence cycle. So that the, the history, the zero to like whenever the memo does start to show up, 
it I don't it's not too late but you better start paying attention to it because you've got grooved and patterns and conditioned responses set in there and that just doesn't happen like a light switch you know oh, um, absolutely so. We always tell people the malleon. We have malleon in our brain. These malleon sheaths, they're grooves that create these behavior patterns and these go-to default behavior patterns. So every time you deal with pain or some form of response to trauma or pain or any type of an, an argument, any emotional up and down, you go drink, right? Um, and so you have to watch that. And in my case, I really had to go all the way back to the beginning. So I was excited to do bereavement counseling, have that conversation about my dad. And I grew up in a Mason household. My, you know, I had a brother that's a Catholic priest. I went to great schools. I went to college. I had a, a beautiful dad who just happened to die young because he had a heart attack. Right. And um, I grew up with a beautiful mother, amazing mentors, amazing friends. But I was always allergic to alcohol. I was was always the person who would go the hardest and the thing for me as it got more um chronic as I woke up in the morning that's when it was bad it's like I felt so terrible my brain was so in pain and I my nervous system I remember shaking and the worst of it one time was when a penny fell and my whole body, my whole equilibrium shattered. And then the only thing that would make it feel better was the, uh, the more, uh, more alcohol. And that's when I started to feel like it was something wrong with me, but I still didn't know how to identify it. I had mm-hmm. two college degrees in, smart kid, still didn't understand what was going on. I thought this was a personal case to me. I was embarrassed. I didn't know how to shit break out of it. It was the only thing making me feel good. Um, and that's why I have a soft heart. And, and that's why your approach. So I like to believe if I met you on that journey and had a conversation, you would have easily been able to say, hey, this is probably what's going on, right? Because of your integrative approach, right? Understanding the holistic side, understanding the system, the dual diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So I think, and we're going back almost 10 years, right? So the game changed a lot, right? That, yeah, it's amazing what's happened just in five years. If you just look at social media and the, the power and um, impact that social media has had on recovery, I think there's been a lot of positive influences there. And there has been... Um, a lot of changes and then also on the flip side particularly maybe with alcohol too as an example is um it's been exacerbated even more i mean you see alcohol show up in tampon commercials you see it show up in between your favorite shows you're just like (laughs) really okay so you know the the branding and the saturation of that particular substance is pretty overwhelming and then we have folks who you know, their accuracy of gathering information to cross-check is, is limited. We just are on information overload and a lot of the information is not always in the best interest, you know, yes, of us. And, right. and our brains are designed to, you know, sort of do what's going to help us feel better. And if our brain has grooved a pattern to grab a drink because that's going to feel better, I mean, that is a split second. That yes. is not even a split second brain imaging suggests that that's like it, it is below a split second yeah and it does. So it's like a nanosecond <laughs> yeah and you know it's hard to help loved ones understand that you know especially folks in active recovery active addiction really and we work with a lot of folks that if we're meeting people where they're at then we're meeting people in the middle of active addiction sometimes yes. and we don't try to shove them into detox we don't try to remove the drugs and alcohol from them. We are meeting them where they're at, and that is really tough for especially the support system to understand, well, they should just quit. Why, why the relapse again? Um, well, because it's really fucking hard. Yeah, like, yeah. And even the nanosecond or even just the mild, like a mild cue. I mean, they've done some really cool stuff at Penn around cues and triggers and relapses and you know it takes time so you can't give up on people i mean no no society you know my my colleague showed up the other day in someone's apartment mate and she's like well there's a relapse but i'm making some sandwiches and we're gonna sit down and 
look at the drawing board again and see what we can come up with. And, and you know what? I tell that's the most beautiful thing I have heard in so long, right? Because that compassion and that empathy is what's going to lead to the success in that individual's recovery. Just the fact that, and it starts with your face. It starts with the disappointment that we feel when you put that work in on a professional side, on a familiar side. It's like, you know, you're trying to help a family member, then they relapse. It's real easy to go, oh man, what's wrong with you? How can you do this? As if they did some crime against humanity, against you yeah. and personally yeah. and it's that they're hurting themselves but you're more out you're outraging a person this, already feels crappy yeah they this has nothing terrible. to do with us exactly At the end of this i don't need a cartwheel a parade fireworks that i have got you past the recovery finish line it really doesn't and i think if family members and even more clinicians can realize it is not about us we're just we've been in the woods longer walking down the same trails Let's strip the white coats and all the letters next to our names. We're really all in the same woods, kind of, right. sort of lost. I've just been here longer, and it can't be about I've fixed you or uh, we're going to, oh, didn't work this time. Um, and that's tough. I think as a clinician, you just have to either – I experienced that early on with working with folks in recovery and addiction. I, I know I felt that when relapse would happen. But then I paid attention to the part of myself that was like, hmm, no, I think we got to just sit here and have a sandwich and talk about yeah. it. And <laughs> make sure that you don't feel like you're a shithead right now and talk to the individual so they feel empowered to be their own best advocate. That that is hard. That made sense that hard. you today. But it made sense. And, you know, I think um, the more that we can surround folks with a lot of that compassion, and I don't think it's being easy on people i don't think it's enabling i think it's no, showing up no, no. and it's being there so um it's it's a way to get people my the, to, so what i'm talking about a lot is i try to get the person back on the wagon as fast as possible right we understand yeah. that this rock bottom thing gets a little bit out of control sometimes because okay you come from this extreme rock you, you good you good you hmm. come from this extreme rock bottom point right then you go through this whole recovery phase and something happens happens and you relapse the guilt and the shame alone can set a person back and i'm qualified to speak about this because I, I went through two or three relapses and i finally found my success so i'm trying to i'm letting the world know even on your end for family's ends what the addict needs in most cases is the proper encouragement because the turnaround time could be three hours to three days to to, to a week and the person's right back in treatment and this time they're reinforced well we see a lot on twitter and through and instagram and facebook through our forums right we have all these addiction forums where we go and we have support forums you'll see when a member relapses in the shame right they'll come in and they'll go oh oh my God, I hate myself. Last night I relapsed. I guess it's back to the drawing board. I guess I lost all of this successful time. It's yep. all of this guilt. And I'm like, look, for, you don't like the recounting back to day one is sometimes yep. harsh. I'm like, give the, I mean, people's going to have a slip. You don't have to take that 300 days and say, go back. You could do that once they get a little bit more healthy. Don't do it while they're still in the initial shock of yeah, the... Don't, don't a, make them shove the tokens back down. Yeah. <laughs> like, you got to just say, Take it easy, and I mean, yeah. yeah. We always, I, I always tell, our, you know, our clients, you have a lot of numbers. Yes, there's a lot. There's a lot of numbers, and however you want to track them, and however you want to kind of categorize them, they all, they all matter. Yes. they really, they really do. And I think, you know, there is a lot of, um, yeah, definitely a lot of shame attached to that to that relapse piece so yeah so thank you for that i know we spent some valuable time there and that means so much to me because a lot of people don't get it and a lot of people listen to the podcast that's still in active addiction and i get the lone emails here and there where they tell me they're struggling they're fighting and they appreciate it so hearing this is going to go a long way so the message we're sending is be patient with yourself love yourself take time register your relapses or your slips um for what they are they're part of the journey 
Don't abuse that because I always tell people between relapses and rock bottoms are a lot of deaths, right? So our goal is to keep you alive to you so you have a fighting chance to make it, to just love yourself and be compassionate. Can we take a detour and talk about the brain a little bit? Um, yesterday, you launched something really incredible. Uh-huh. And it was your hippocampus workshop and the hippocampus training. And I'm so fascinated with this. So can you talk to us a little bit about the brain, your company blend, this new program you have um, training the hippocampus? I love it. And I'm very excited to hear more. Thank you for that brain love. (laughs) So we're, you know, our team, I, I would say that my love for the brain probably started when I a little bit in social work school, but I think you either just are sort of curious about it. I mean, it is a pretty significant muscle up there that's fairly responsible for quite a bit. And I think it shouldn't be so distant from anyone really that the more that we can learn about our brain, the more that we can educate folks in a manner where they get it. Like it isn't this like weird scientific, neurological, lots of jargon attached to it. It is a brain. It functions it supports it's really valuable it has a lot of potential to for regrowth and you know the plasticity piece so we love the brain and our objective as a company and as a team is to be able to try to connect with folks about their brain talk to about the brain in treatment in sessions but also start hosting some of these workshops and these educational sessions to um give folks a chance to understand the certain parts of the brain and what they're doing and, and connect the why they're doing something, a behavior, and how it could negatively or positively impact the brain. So, you know, whether it comes with, with the hippocampus, you know, in terms of uh, memory, uh, executive functioning, our ability to be cognitively sharp during the day, the hippocampus um, is a region where, um, you know, with the influence of quality sleep, uh, exercise or movement, however you want to kind of categorize that, uh, nutrition and mindfulness, that kind of combination really strengthens that region of the brain in adulthood. The brain, we've got rapid growth zero to five. Then it kind of takes a little bit of a break, hangs out. Then around 12 to 26, and it is 26, is when it is the, the adolescent brain. So I just anyone who is an adolescent or is in the world with their beautiful adolescence. I have a really special adolescent in my household in terms of it is because their brain is going through so much. And we know that about adolescence, but it's 12 to 26. Then just after 26, the brain rewires for adulthood. And that is sort of the phase where, okay, personality, identity, parts of the brain in the region have molded. However, there is plasticity. There is the opportunity to strengthen a region like the hippocampus. There is the, also the possibility to impact those regions by substance use, um, not necessarily uh, resolving trauma, you know. So there are regions that if you continue to use substances, obviously it will greatly impact a region like the hippocampus. So we're just excited to be able to what do people want to learn? How can we talk to folks about it? If we don't have folks on staff that um, have the expertise or have the language or kind of that um, uh, ability to connect with folks on the on the brain on a like people to people matter, not scientific or research based, uh, then we pull those folks in for the hippocampus. We have an individual that um, is in kinesiology and exercise science, and then we had a registered dietitian. And then my, my colleague, John Evans, has a PhD in sports and performance, and he works with a lot of, um, really a wide range of individuals, but loves working with mindfulness, meditation, um, is a huge proponent of acceptance commitment therapy in the work that we do. Uh, so the brain is uh, a fascinating region, and whatever we can do to start educating our kids about it, um, it is there to be it need to be more open about it you know I think it it shows up in such like here let's learn about the brain in ninth grade biology yeah and then you know it it, again it's a separate it's not integrated I think um it's presented oftentimes in a way where um we either feel 
unwilling or unprepared to kind of engage with certain regions of the brain or talk about it, but we love it. We think it's an important part of psychoeducation for especially folks in addiction and recovery to understand what you were referring to earlier, that there's pathways. Listen, like this is a pretty intense muscle up here. Correct. It is not your will, or it's not that you don't have passion to try to get clean. It is a system of pretty sophisticated communications in your brain that has been wired, has been grooved. Uh, and we're not even talking about like <laughs> way back caveman brain and how our brain is still behaves in a way that protects us. So correct, uh, correct. that psychoeducation piece is not only interesting and fascinating, but important for folks across the mental health spectrum, but also addiction and recovery to know that there is um, value in understanding it, that they're not, it's not just that you just can't do it. Like maybe I'm not cut out for being clean because I just don't have the willpower. No, this yes. is pretty significant. So yeah, I, we, lo- we love the brain. We hope we can do, I've done a lot of work with uh, adolescents and addiction um, and just harm reduction essentially with adolescents and trying to think about how we might be able to approach uh, adolescent brain health and substance use along with harm reduction reduction approaches, which is essentially like, you will likely have substances show up in front of you because of how you're wired and your inability to measure consequences and risks, you will likely try that substance. How do we as mental health professionals engage in uh, adolescent mental health therapy that allows them to kind of almost role play to get them accustomed to know that, yep, uh oh, you had a drink at a party. How did that? Because this black and white, like don't do drugs, don't yeah. drink, is yeah. hasn't been working well, and our adolescents are not well. You know, that's uh, correct, correct. So, and they're dealing um, with way harder drugs and substances. Like the 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 pot we used to smoke is not the pot that they're smoking now. I'm talking about no this way, stuff. <laughs> this stuff is laced with some heavy, heavy substances, and um, it's just and they're dealing with a lot the prescription era, these opioids, and all of this stuff. So I have compassion there. So um, I have a friend that's uh, right now. They they do everything right. They they're not they they never drink. They don't have any drug issues, but they they're experiencing some form of early onset dementia or memory loss. And the research suggests that the hippocampus part of the brain has something to do with that. Um, the memory center Mm -hmm. and, and it's the only part I'm not sure about this. I'm not correct with the science, um, but it's a part of the brain that can't necessarily regrow. It's not necessarily neurogenesis there. Um, but I'm not sure, but I know that they're really scared because they, they, they're trying to going on something called the mind diet now. And they're and so when I was doing the research, it was the same thing in your system, sleep, nutrition, exercise. The biggest component that would be the X factor is stress, how stress affects the brain and um, the memory centers of the brain mm-hmm. and lack of certain vital um, nutrients and stuff. So I'm trying to figure out how to help them and not that the medication that they offer was almost close to a, um, it was epilep- epileptic medicine, oh, to help, yeah. which would totally change their personality. The research and side effects was horrible. Yeah. So it's that little gray area, but it's all, so I'm trying to figure yeah. out how to navigate that area for yeah. people who don't yeah. have addiction. Yeah, that's that's important. You know, um, the the piece that I would slide in there with uh, movement, sleep, nutrition would be mindfulness and meditation practices. Uh, they all go hand in hand, and it is a skill and it is a practice. So again, folks, be compassionate with yourself and how you approach mindfulness and meditation, but when you start practicing mindfulness and meditation routines, it will impact those other areas in terms of your ability to approach a sleep routine, a movement routine, and a nutrition routine. Um, The memory consolidation that occurs in the hippocampus is also connected to quality sleep. So what time are you going to sleep? What time are you waking up? What are you doing to create a solid sleep routine to be able to uh, promote Uh, and strengthen that region and be able to organize those memories in a way that uh, the brain does during sleep cycles. So I would recommend, you know, mindfulness and meditation in a skills-based 
practice for folks would be really important. And what I mean by that is really looking at it like training uh, and really practicing that, uh, practicing mindfulness in a way that you are slowing down, that you're able to kind of connect with those those other areas that do make a whole lifestyle and a holistic way of living and, and a whole well-being. So the mindfulness practices are really key. You know, you hear a lot about mindfulness, um, but there are skills, approaches, ways in which it doesn't have to be so disconnected from the rest of you. So if someone is receiving medication for, you know, early onset dementia, if they want to look at another, you know, you, you want to look at the whole piece and look at how mindfulness might be able to support that individual. Um, Can you give us a basic example of what mindfulness is, what it looks like? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll do my best. Our mindfulness guru uh, is, is John Evans and I'd, I'd love for you to be able to hey John <laughs> John's my guy he uh, uh, would talk your ear off all day long about <laughs> mindfulness he actually spent about seven years with special ops for wow. the US so to give you some insight into terms like where his approach comes from is you know he was working with folks that had to uh, kind of essentially train them with mindfulness practices to be in the present moment because they have nine million other agendas and strategies and environmental factors going on while they are trying to complete any part of a special ops mission. Um, so, you know, when we connected and I wanted to hire him, I'm like, well, we're all trying to do special ops in life. Like, why can't you teach what you're teaching them? That's right. <laughs> um, the rest of us, like, doesn't it feel someday, like when you're going through life, that I feel like a special ops ninja. I could use some support with that. So right. he's, he's done a really great job of translating in such a seamless, approachable manner some of those skills. And I think, you know, his theoretical framework is acceptance commitment therapy. So part of that mindfulness practice is the acceptance piece. Mm-hmm. And being able to, with self-compassion, accept whatever feeling emotion or thought that is occurring you can notice it watch it walk by and then be able to engage in whatever uh, is in front of you that's easier said than done particularly when we've got trauma when we've got unresolved trauma so if someone's not in active counseling and therapy for their trauma that that idea of just saying hey thought See you later. Um, you got it. You just really hit doable. it. Isn't really doable. So I want to just make sure folks understand that compassion goes along with that acceptance. Some of the mindfulness activities that he would suggest um, would be just practicing the noticing. So he often suggests folks like walking up and down their block and just notice like, I see a tree, I see a leaf, I see a garbage can, and not connecting thinking to it because our brains think nonstop. Yes. Constant, 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 constant. They are not always, it's really not a good friend of ours. We really, the brain's great, but it also yeah. really causes quite a bit of uh, combustion for us. So yes. what I mean by that is if I'm walking down my street and I notice the trees and I notice the leaves are starting to change here in Michigan, I'm just going to notice that. I'm not going to think, oh man, I hate the fall. I really love the, it's so nice and warm now. Like, I'm just noticing the leaves are changing and then I'm moving on and then I see garbage cans. Oh, did I set my garbage can out? Oh, I hate garbage. No, I'm just noticing. So that's that mindfulness piece and present moment connection. Thank you. You are in it and listen, we can't be in it all day long, folks. It would be exhausting to be present moment connected, but we are a very disconnected society and we are so disconnected from ourselves. So we're really looking to go from like here to hear and just to be able to practice it we're not asking you to be like home runs with mindfulness or else you would be exhausted okay. um, some simple exercises too he suggests really early on while you're in the shower mindfulness i'm putting shampoo in my hands i'm washing my hair not okay i gotta get out of the shower i gotta make coffee my kids are out there again it's just a practice and honestly the more you're able to kind of do it in some of your natural patterns brushing yes. your teeth walking down the street to get the mail. Um, If it's also coupled, I say it's important to couple it also with if you've got the access to resources or ways in which you can also 
talk through whatever it is that you might need to talk through. Yeah. Good old fashioned verbal processing goes a long way. There's no magic here, folks. It's just yes. open the space and let's start talking. Um, oh my God, Brooke, you just hit, <laughs> you just gave us the absolute cocktail, the the, the most helpful one. And, and, um, and, that's the I love it because now I know I could go back to my friend now when you hit on the trauma I left that out the mindfulness meditation was left out the actual meditation practice the compassion the acceptance the therapy you see that whole block I just totally left out and it's it's, so important it's so important and it's a lot so I think the compassion piece and knowing that you don't have to do it alone no one is asking for you to do this alone yes at all there is help everywhere, resource-wise, pull it together. And if your supports are solid quality people, they will do what they can to get you other supports. Yes. And it's about getting you what you need to kind of put that together so you don't have to do it alone. No one should have to do any of this alone. And really that's what makes it hopefully enjoyable and we can offer some levity every once in a while and some humor and some grace in this work because it is really hard especially the trauma piece is when you start unpacking that there's some great stuff that can come out but you 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 really want some people in your corner so oh my god you are amazing this has been an amazing experience and congratulations on setting up your company this is it was a a really a really important thing for you to do you and and now you're trailblazing and it took a lot of courage and I'm excited for you and the future of Blend and bringing all of these um, doctors together. You're you're running the company. You're a PhD candidate. You're doing all of these amazing yeah. things. You're a truly true superhero. Um, the Sobers Dope Podcast love to bring on what we call our little superheroes of people. Oh, I appreciate that. I will want to say one more thing about. Yes. I, I just I don't know why I forget about my PhD. Maybe because I'm. It's maybe one of those avoidant behaviors that I like to put away. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm almost there, but I just want to shine a light on the research that I'm focused on, which is gender responsive approaches to addiction. Yes, yes. So we're looking at uh, gender, that a man's experience when a man engages with a substance for the first time and a woman's experience engaging with substances for the first time are for two very different reasons. They also have two very different experiences in life. So their routes and pathways to addiction and along the way are very unique for the man and for the, the woman. So yes. we're looking at um, how to create specific treatment approaches and just, again, dive into that gender-specific approach. Um, and they're very, they're very different. You know, men, men typically lean into substances because of curiosity. Okay. And yes maybe they are realizing that it really provides relief because of an early trauma, but it's generally like curiosity, kind of group think. Women are, a large percentage are leaning into substances because of uh, needing to get through, uh, coping is the primary. They are anxious, they don't, they're in a situation that they're not, something's going on, um, especially related to trauma and sexual encounters so yeah is, so, is that is the is the, the the x factor in relationship to intense emotions in any way is it a our women tend to be more connected to their emotions at a younger age so they be maybe doing more coping leading them to use it um yeah, I, men? yeah I think that the you know I'd, I'd love to see what I can find out more about that but what it's suggesting is yeah, the intensity at which, especially like pre-adolescent, that range where normally substances start to become, you know, and I'm talking at the majority, not for folks who were introduced to substances at a really young age, but kind of that pre-adolescent, adolescent yeah. time period. That, yeah, the curiosity uh, and, phase, yeah. Uh-huh, and that females really, you know, in our culture, what they're presented with and those expectations that are placed on females in their roles at that age, whether it's their body, what they're supposed to do with their body, how they're supposed to talk, walk, engage, um, having that substance there to manage that anxiety. 
um, is usually like kind of that tipping point. So mm, social um, pressure, expectations, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, that's so. interesting. So that's exciting. You do yeah, some yeah, great thanks. work there. Yeah. So it's not a one size fit fits all approach. So you have to be gender. The gender approach is being mindful of the unique treatment pathways that each individual may need and I, I love that I love that yeah and our men like we don't take great care of them yeah. often we don't provide the space to really we still have to look at what do we do I have three boys you know what are we doing to raise boy it is both are important to then integrate together so we can be in better communities and yeah, we, we have to be hands-on. We can't let the world, you know, especially with internet, letting the world raise the children and society and doing a better job because the world is consistently communicating and sending messages. So we have to be in the mix. Like I talked to my, I don't have kids yet, but I talked to my nephew. How are you doing? I want you to clearly know you're an all-star and you don't need to drink alcohol and stuff to be cool and let's talk about that. Do you like it? Have you tried it? And he'll go, oh, I don't like the taste of it. And I'm like, well, look how, you know, one time I drove him around the neighborhood and showed him what homelessness really looked like, what the other dark side of addiction really looked like. You know, talk to him about women, love, and just really connecting on different ways and, 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 and trying to really do a good job. Kids is extremely brilliant at depart, um, decompartmentalizing what they do. They could tell you all day, I get it, I understand, I hear you. And there's things that they will never, ever, ever, ever try to say to you so because they don't believe that they can or they'll be judged. So they'll shut you off to that, but they'll tell a complete stranger. So mm-hmm. what we have to do is try to make them believe that, look, I'm not, re- I'm really not going to judge you. And it's very important that we yeah. could be honest with each other so I could help you if you really need the help. And once your kid opens up that way, you know, you, a lot of therapy and a lot, you could get to them before the world gets to them in a lot of cases, but you have to really. Yeah. That's a beautiful example of just early and often. Keep yes. engaging, keep talking. You know, folks, parents ask me all the time, well, how do I talk about, you know, drug, sex, and rock and roll? Early and often, you keep talking uh, okay. about it and you don't expect them to give you a high five after the parent conversation Correct. either. Because they are going to like sort of shut you down or be like, oh, okay, uh huh, yep. Yeah. yeah, I think I heard you. Yep. Early and often, but not, you know, in a way that they know that it's a part of the conversation in the household, really. Yeah. And that we're going to keep talking about it. And if you try, you know, and keeping that open, safe dialogue because there's enough, like I said earlier, inaccurate information out there. That right, <laughs> right. And the beautiful thing is the more, the early and often helps with the subconscious programming because we know the first seven years of a child's life, they pick up their all the cues from their environment that's usually part of their default programming and stuff like that. So when you're consistently talking to them and you saying these things, that could kick in. I mean, stuff that my mom was telling me that I thought I didn't even take in was hitting me in my 30s when I was struggling, like in my late 20s, because I got sober close to going into my 30s, thank God. And I, and I, and I love the fact that I, now I understand why I was so wild till 27 and 28. I was like a late adolescent brain. I could, my adolescent brain kind of spilt over to like 30. And then one day it clicked on and I said, oh, I got to get so I can't do this. <laughs> but you you know what, Doc? We could talk all day and I feel so good about this conversation. I learned so much today and I just want to thank you. Um, I'm going to leave. I'm going to do, I'm going to leave all your information in the show notes and stuff like that. So before we go, can you just tell everyone the community where they can find blend tell them um and give them any advice and any closing remarks the floor is yours and just god bless you and thank you so much for joining us on the sober's dope podcast this was a lot of fun i have a lot of fun when i can smile and laugh and have really great candid conversation i think that was that's something what i would leave you all with is that that's uh our approach and what we hope for people is to be able to meet them literally and figuratively where they are at, wherever they are in their journey, whatever phase, and to be able to start modeling what we want for your life, which is a lot of independence to try to find your voice in your recovery, whatever that recovery looks like. So, um, and we do that, we really do do it one day at a time and we really customize it with you. We meet you in the dog park, the yoga mat. I've been in people's bedrooms over and over again because that's just, they don't want to leave their bedroom. So it is, it. but we, 
want you all to heal. We need folks in our world that have had these journeys. I really believe that in terms of the path and the narratives that feel so painful and so dark, they do serve a purpose. And there are people out there to be able to support and wrap around and untangle that purpose and that narrative. And I really am a strong believer of getting more of you all out into the world. We need a lot of love more than ever before. Um, you can find us at our Instagram at blendhealth.com. Well, that's at blendhealth on Instagram. And then our website is blendhealth.com. And that should be updated here soon. And then you'll be able to see all of our um, practitioners. We have a practitioner in Denver. We've got folks in Michigan. Before COVID hit, we were doing the virtual stuff. So that's not do new to us. So we have groups, workshops, individual sessions. We're always, always, always willing to have one or two conversations with you. And if it feels like you want to work with us, great. Our desire is to make sure you're also have the tools and the resources to find support elsewhere. The mental health care system is cumbersome. So one of our missions as a group is anyone that comes in contact with us, great if they get to be a part of our community. But what we want to do is open the pathway and make the bridge to their next support just that much easier. So um, we'd love to see you on Instagram, love to have folks uh, connect with us in any way that they feel comfortable. So appreciate being here and talking about it. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from the one and only Brooke Byers, <laughs> founder of Blend. She is excellent. She's doing a lot in the integrative mental health and wellness space. I love you all. You're listening to the Sober is Dope podcast. Go in peace, and I'll catch you guys on the other side. <laughs>